Welcome to Season 8 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Passionate about leadership education? You want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. Um, We're, as we've said, I think for seven episodes in a row, we are in our eighth season where we're focused on research and scholarship in the field of leadership education. We have spent a lot of time this season talking to researchers scholars, peer reviewers, editors, co-editors, we sought to paint this broad picture of what leadership education scholarship looks like. Um, We've kind of spilled a little bit out of it into like some management and leadership development and some of those other related areas. But we spent this time really asking deep questions about where should and do leadership educators go for research? This episode will be no different. Yeah, we're taking a slightly different angle and um, instead of reaching out into our networks, uh, this, these are some uh, today's topic are some things that uh, we've experienced uh, ourselves, and I guess I've kind of uh, jumped into the deep end of in my uh, career as a, as an academic. And so we're going to talk quite a bit today about the role of the peer reviewer uh, in the research process. So we've talked to others about this in some um, it come up uh, for sure, particularly when we've talked with some of the editors and co-editors. Uh, associate editors or all the different titles that we throw around uh, of the different editorial teams for the different uh, peer reviewed journals that we've that we've had on. They've talked about how they work with their reviewers and recruiting reviewers and definitely share a little bit about my perspective on that. But Lauren and I are going to have a pretty open conversation about this role uh, in this episode. Yeah, and I'm I'm excited and, and I'm sure our listeners already know, but we we have plenty of graduate students or those that are new to research and scholarship who listen to our podcast. So when we're talking about peer reviewers, we're talking about those that are in the process for journals and publications that that review the manuscripts as they come in, they offer feedback, they help with the decision-making process, whether it's a revise and review, resubmit or whether it's a rejection. Um, there's been a consistent theme in every episode about the peer reviewer role. And so we thought it would be really good today to talk about that. Dan has plenty of experience with that. I've done more peer reviewing for conference presentations and submissions than actual peer reviewers. It's funny, I I got invited to do one and I was like, can I do this? Like, is it for me? So hopefully I'll answer that question by the end of this episode. I feel like I've I've read plenty of literature. Um, however, you know, am I or can I, do I have the skill set, uh, I think will be hopefully something we can answer by the, the time we're done today. Um, so Dan, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, how did you get into peer reviewing literature? Sure. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting too, that you began sharing a little bit about some of your experience reviewing for conference presentations. I I want to say that might have been the very, very first opportunity I got to peer review. Uh, and I think about when I share with graduate students in the research methods classes that I teach in our master's and PhD program and explaining to them, well, why do you need 
peer-reviewed sources? And why is that different than the sources that maybe you were required to get when you were writing as an undergrad? And talking to them about that process of, okay, well, how do we know that science is science? Um, and how do we know that there's credibility and validity and what have you? And how do you create a community around different academic disciplines, schools of thought, whatever you want to call them, and this process of submitting your work with the understanding that it will be blind reviewed, usually two or three individuals that um, are qualified based on the screening process that individual journals utilize to, to screen folks. Oftentimes it's a terminal degree, but not always. But one of the things that certainly asked when you are signing up for these types of things or throwing your name in the hat, oftentimes there's open calls for reviewers. I know that the Journal of Leadership Studies, Journal of Leadership Education are always looking for reviewers and the, the editors that we had on um, mentioned that, although we didn't have the editor on for Journal of Leadership Studies, but I know that Mark's always looking for, for reviewers and glad to put you in touch with, with them. But similar to keywords that you might put in, you know, in a thesis dissertation, uh, a journal article, you're asked to basically put in your key research interests or expertise uh, when you sign up to be a reviewer. Uh, same thing happens oftentimes, as you know, as Lauren mentioned about conference reviewing. It happens there too. Um, so it's, it tends to be sometimes more focused on what types of sessions do you want to review? You know, do you want to review a workshop or a research paper or what have you? But sometimes too, like I know with the ILA, they'll ask you, well, in addition to that, um, are there certain member community or affinity groups that you want to, you know, do you only want to review papers or sessions submitted in the leadership education track or the public leadership track or the women in leadership track or followership or, or what have you? But how did I first get into it? Uh, honestly, I, I think I uh, responded to a request for uh, a call for reviewers. I, I want to say it was almost, I can't imagine it wasn't the Journal of Leadership Education because I remember, um, I can't remember if it was on the episode or before the episode when we were talking off mic. I said, you know, I think I've been, I probably reviewed, you know, I, I said, I don't know, Jackie, maybe like eight or 10. She's like, oh, no, no, no. You've reviewed way more than that. Um, and I think she's probably right. But I. I don't know how I've, I've kept track of some of that, um, but I think that is the one that I've definitely reviewed for the most, uh, followed by the Journal of Leadership Studies, where I've held an editorial role for um, about six or seven years. But part of my role as an associate editor for one of their, I guess they would call it sections. Let's go with sections, which is for media reviews. And one of my responsibilities is to select peer reviewers that aligned their expertise when they filled out their volunteer form, if you will, um, with the types of submission uh, or manuscript that is sent my way. And so I got into it similarly. I think that once, um, and some journals will require that you published in their journal before they uh, anoint you as, uh, you know, having the credibility to, to do so, uh, but that's not always the case. Again, you know, I think uh, if you have a terminal degree or if you've got requisite experience, you know, you, they're always looking for reviewers. And so I responded to a hey, do you want to be a reviewer type of thing? And I'd say I probably get two to three a year. The journals that I'm a regular reviewer for, which I would say for those journal leadership education and journal leadership studies, although a little less so with journal leadership studies since I'm on their board. But out of the blue, sometimes because my credentials are online, I will get requests to review from sometimes it's journals I've heard of, sometimes it's journals I've never heard of. You know, you've got to decide 
how much time do you have? Right. And not to feel guilty about that too. And in fact, one of the journals that I just have not been able to have time, I can't remember the name of it, but it's, it's an international journal. Um, but one of the options is if you say no, one of the subcategories is I don't have the time. And I actually really respect that that's one of the options. It's a good point. Uh, it's definitely a good point because depending on what time of year it is, like if you sent me a, like a journal article review in June, I got plenty of time in June to, mm-hmm. to review. Mm-hmm. But if you send me something in March, February, those are some tight months, right? But um, yeah. so you brought up some really good points. One of the things that, that I think about, especially as you think about the terminal degree and then if you've published or not, to me, it sounds like what the peer reviewer is doing on a like a much larger, more detailed scale is similar to the way in which you've critiqued journals in that PhD process. Um, you know, I can understand why if you've never published or if you don't have a terminal degree, you know, it may not be a space for you. But in going through this process, all I've been doing for the last like, gosh, however long, like the last few years has been looking at the the quality, the validity, the relevance of the many the articles that are published and really picking apart, you know, what information they're sharing and maybe where are their gaps or opportunities for more research or where are things is there misalignment or are they kind of stumbling upon a, an aha moment or something I've heard in the field, but maybe never seen in writing. And so I feel like as a peer reviewer, while you are helping that person, I almost feel like it's a good challenge for yourself to stay present and to stay fresh um, in the literature. It, it models a consistent practice that you've built throughout your own development. And again, I feel like it, it keeps you really, really fresh in that space. Can you share like, what are some good characteristics or skills that a good reviewer has to have? So we know they have to be up on relevant literature. What else do you think they need in order to, to be effective in the process? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the most important roles is that you're specific and with your feedback, as well as not brief, <laughs> I think is the best the best way to, to, I guess, describe that. I mean, and to your point too, I don't want to um, forget to comment on, it's really helpful and I guess rewarding to get to see some research before it's published, right? You do feel that you're part of the community or you have an opportunity to make an impact and contribute in that way. I think that in that role, the more specific you can be with the folks that have submitted the manuscript about what components of their writing might need to be improved or, um, and, and probably what's what really jumps out for me is, is there any relevant research that has not been covered that is central to this particular manuscript that is being submitted to this journal? Sometimes there's glaring you know, deficiencies in that, in that area. And you just want to say, oh my gosh, you know, have you read this? Have you read that? Um, and it's not big, and, and you're not trying to one-up them. You're just trying to say, I bet this would really enhance your literature review or, hey, you know, this study is really important and, and it, it has findings that either affirm or might challenge what you found here. I think it's really important to be aware of that. And I think that's one of the benefits that quality peer reviewers bring is they have that knowledge base. And so that's another reason that, you know, you're asked for keywords or key expertise when you sign up is, you know, if I get a paper on something related to leadership education, that's in my wheelhouse, right? 
But if it's like neuroscience and leadership development, I'm like, I don't know, you, you probably, you know, sometimes I'll reject an invitation to review something if I don't have the right expertise. You know, I'll get, you know, if I see a title of a manuscript and I'm like, they must think I'm somebody else <laughs> or it's kind of a reach, you know, and I, I'll, I'll say to the, whoever sent me the invite, you know, this looks like a great paper, but I, I don't think um, this is something that I would be, I don't have the expertise to, to do a good review and it, um, I would be doing a disservice to the author or co-authors. And so I think it's a combination of thanking them for a good manuscript, being kind. I've been on both sides of this, right? So when, and there's, you all should check out like, I think it's called Revere number two must be stopped. There's like a Twitter feed and a Facebook and an Instagram. Like they've done, they've done a field day with this particular idea, but there's always one reviewer that, you know, you might get a this uh, amazing review from one and then you're like this, and then reviewer two and you're like, why does this person hate me? <laughs> you know, and you'll get some off the wall types of things. Uh, but again, I've found that um, what makes a good peer reviewer is someone who really dives into the areas that they have been selected to be a peer reviewer, like for, right? Is it method? That's something that um, I know Journal of Leadership Studies does a good job of just because I've been on that side of is, you know, if we get a qualitative manuscript, we're going to make sure that we have someone on our editorial team as well as peer reviewers that have expertise in that area. And so it really is an opportunity to showcase your knowledge in a way that is helpful, right? Providing feedback, you know, as Kathy Guthrie shared when she was on, feedback is love and really trying to, to hold these folks up because should they be successful, then they're having an opportunity to contribute to the field. And, you know, you've been a part of that. I imagine it's a great process if you are a natural learner, just meaning that, yeah, you may know, uh, you know, some of what they're proposing, or you may know about the methodology or the theory they're using to, to build. Mm -hmm. um, but I imagine it's just good and just interesting. And you can just learn things like, oh, I didn't know about this resource or this area. Like you talked about neuropsychology. And I think about how, like one of my colleagues, she is, so it, she's a, an advertising public relations researcher. And she like, scans eyeballs to to determine like consumer buying behavior or something of that nature and my mind is blown because i'm like how is looking at my eyeballs going to tell you like what lipstick i'm going to buy from sephora but like she kind of makes this argument that these are the kinds of things that we can do with technology so i imagine some of it is you're familiar but this idea of learning something new about the the field or, or how people are connecting the dots uh can be fun can you share like a little bit about like the flip? So you've, you've been, a, you've done peer reviewing. How does that, that then change kind of how you look at your own writing and submission approach? Yeah, that's a good question. I ask wonderful questions. Um, <laughs> I know, Lauren, that's why know. this works, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, how is my experience as a peer reviewing and submission approach? Uh, you know, I think and I think we, I, we talked about this a little bit with some of the other guests we've had on this this season and that analogy that I used around, you know, if you want to get better at, you know, playing jazz, you know, which is what my junior high band director said. He says, well, you, how many jazz records do you own? Go to the record store, back when there were record stores, and, and go get yourself and listen to Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie and Thelonious Monk and Duke Ellington and John Coltrane, and you're not going to get better at playing until you know the, the repertoire right and so the same thing the more you read the better writer 
I think that you that you become. And so I think that having access to these manuscripts when they may not be at their best, but they're, you know, that's the author's intent, of course, is that they're, they've sent in something that's really polished, but it's also your responsibility to say, hey, on page four, you know, there's, there's, an, there's some APA errors or, hey, this changed from the sixth edition to the seventh edition of APA and, um, and doing it in a kind way. And I'm big on sharing URLs or uh, links, you know, links to things to say, hey, here's, here's how the Purdue Owl says this is supposed to be cited or, um, or have you checked out this issue of this journal um, that just did a special issue on your exact topic or something really closely related. And so I think that I'm more mindful of some of those things as a writer and through the submission approach. I think too, it makes you a little, not even a little, I think it, it increases your humility as an author because now you know what it's like to be on both sides. And I think too, that way you don't get so discouraged <laughs> when you get negative feedback. I'll, I'll take constructive feedback all day. Um, and I can honestly say, I can kind of on one hand probably the, the number of times that I've got something that was really just kind of blatantly rude or mean or, or anything like that in response to a manuscript. Most of the time, the reason that you're getting feedback that I was asking for improvements is um, because they, they really want your manuscript has merit, right? But just as well, there have been times where as a reviewer, I've told authors, this is not a good fit for this journal. For example, and I'll just use Journal of Leadership Education again is because that's the one that I reviewed for the most. But there have been times where perhaps they haven't cited the Journal of Leadership Education even once in the manuscript they're submitting to that journal. And that's, that's, can be a red flag or the manuscript is about a leadership theory, but nothing to do with the study or practice of actually teaching leadership or leadership learning or training or development. You know, it's much more about leadership as a, as a field or as a theory or something like that. The other thing I'll add, uh, probably the last thing in this answer, this question is going back, listening to jazz and, and reading these different things, whether it just be getting more familiar with uh, how a journal article looks in a certain journal or reading some of the manuscripts that have been submitted, you get much more familiar with the structure and the organization, uh, the language, the tone, the level of depth of research, and some of those types of things. You know, how many how many citations are kind of expected on average? You know, I mean, the differences between like a leadership quarterly and uh, journal leadership studies, which are both premier journals in the field looking more at like theory and research. But on average, leadership quarterly articles have two to three times as many citations, if not more. And it's not because they're just glorified literature reviews, they're not, but the expectation of that journal is that it's uh, considerably just, just more depth of exposure and, and inquiry into whatever the subject matter area is. In addition to, you might see uh, considerably more advanced methods and leadership quarterly uh, on occasion than you will in journal leadership studies, but not, but not always. It's just that tends to be a trend that I've observed. 
you know, some of the things that you're sharing reminded me of our conversation with Dr. Nathan Eva, where he talked mm-hmm. about kind of in doing your research and really looking at journals. And sometimes it's journals that you have to submit to because of your, your department or your college or school or university. Um, and then at other times, there are like the nuanced things that may not be explicitly said, but the things that peer reviewers are checking for. Like I would never, I, I think I, I wouldn't have done this, but I would never thought, make sure I cite the journal in the writing, in the the article. Um, But I I also think about in writing my dissertation that one of my committee members is, uh, well, each of my committee members brings great talent. One is very knowledgeable in relational teaching. And in my first draft, I didn't have anything from this person. And my chair was like, you can't do this. And I was like, you make a great point. And it just so happened, I, I hadn't gotten thoroughly, I hadn't thoroughly fleshed that section out, but I knew her, the core concepts that this person wrote about, they would be included. I just didn't have them in the first draft. So it reminds me of like those little things like that, that they're not specifically stated, but they're definitely logical. Like they make sense as you're trying to to prepare and, and submit. Are you allowed or do you ever see responses from your feedback? Meaning do the, I know the authors see your feedback, but do, are they ever allowed to kind of converse back and forth around a point? That's that's a great question because that's something that um, I know that Nathan shared when he did the workshop with my grad students because it was a very specific question. And I think I've been, a and I've engaged in this a, very few, but a handful of times where the author, because you're, you're supposed to keep some anonymity as, you know, it's a blind review, right? But I have worked as kind of the intermediary between a reviewer and an author team or an author just trying to understand what do you what do you want me to do here right what, what's going to get this from you know revise and resubmit to to accepted and sometimes and once or twice i've said you know what to i think this is for journal leadership studies I, I said to the editor mark i said can we just make an exception and connect this one peer reviewer because it's you know, and usually it's at that point where it's maybe it's gone through two or three rounds and it's close. Like, you know, we know we're going to accept it. We've just got to get this last reviewer on board and they are asking for something very specific. And the best way to do it is just to connect them. And but sometimes we've done that and still kept the uh, anonymity of the uh, of the individual. Can I ask mm-hmm. a question? So then like if you were revise and resubmit, does it go back to the same people that reviewed it the first time? It's supposed to, yeah. In mo- in the perfect world, it does. Um, that's one of the things that you are generally asked as a reviewer is if uh, would you be re- uh, willing to review this again? Mm. Um, I mean, I think one time ever I had something accepted on the first go around, and I I, I lost my mind. Like, I, and it was a co-authored piece, and we were jumping up and down. We couldn't believe it. But every other time, I've had at least one round, if not two. And, and I think even three once, you know, or tw- I mean, nobody's perfect, right? I mean, that that was, that's a complete, that's like a 16 seed upset in the one seed, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is March, right? So, it is. And uh, New Jersey schools are kicking everybody's butt. So my home state is is out there. Yeah, they've, uh, they've had quite a run. They've had quite a run the last few years, right? Yeah. Um, so, but, um, but yeah, no, that's a great, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, that, Around that, around that particular part of the process. And ideally, as an, you know, as an editor, you are hopeful that you, you know, if these three folks were able to review the first round, that they're available again the second time. 
Um, if they're not, sometimes we'll bring in a new reviewer, but they have not seen the first round and that can, it can slow things up because then you brought it, bring, sometimes you'll bring in somebody new and they have an issue with something that the first three, first three reviewers didn't. And then it kind of snowballs and um, it can be frustrating for an editor. Um, so I think another thing like what makes a good peer reviewer is someone who, I mean, yes, this is a volunteer role, right? You're not getting paid to do this. And we're also not getting paid to publish research as scholars, uh, but that's a whole other episode um, mm. on the podcast. But, you know, if, you, if you're going to commit to doing one review, I please try and commit to just seeing it to either getting it published or, or uh, you know, unfortunately not everything gets, gets accepted. So that's a good point. You know, you may see it twice, you know, before it gets pushed through and it might be a while before you see it. Is that true? It depends. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we had like Jackie Bruce on from Journal Leadership Ed, she was talking about, you know, they're really kind of industry leading turnaround time of like 20 something days or, or you know, it was no more than a month. I remember that. Um, and there are some journals that it's, it's several months and it just depends too. I mean, it's not always, sometimes it's the amount of time that you give reviewers uh, sometimes it's just the backlog uh, or the, the pure number of submissions that some journals are getting. I think out of the folks that we've talked with, probably the Journal of Management Education gets gets the most numbers of submissions. I think the number that she gave us was was pretty, it was hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands a year. Uh, I might be I might be misspeaking on that, but I remember it being a, quite a quite a lot, uh, several hundred. Like it was like two to three every day or something. This is really. Yeah, deep. which I, like right, that. right which is just uh, incredible. So that was super helpful about the authors and peer review um, process, because I, I know you're supposed to be blind, but I also feel like uh, one of the things that people have talked about regularly is creating community. And I feel like part of that is some dialogue back and forth. So kind of keeping it anonymous, but also making sure communication is clear um, is important. Is there anything else you want to add to that space? Yeah, so one of the things that, uh, and I think I, th this was a result of some mentoring I got early on. I think it was, you know, that first, I mean, I really was kind of mystified about the peer review process. I mean, I, I think I understood what my faculty member was saying when I was a doc student submitting my first peer reviewed article to a, to a journal about what this process would look like. But then, you know, I got to revise and resubmit, which I was ecstatic about. Um, but I was like, now what do I do? I mean, I know I need to make changes, but like, now what do I do? You know, and so I've found that at least for me, this has worked really, really well. And um, when I see this type of response come through from the editorial side, I find that it, it creates a really good level and sense of communication specifically. Let's say you get seven items of feedback to literally, uh, and, some, and many journals will require that you address each piece of feedback individually. Um, otherwise, why are the reviewers volunteering their time, right? And so I will take the time to Say, you know, to comment one, thank you for the suggestion. Here's what we've done to, I'm thinking of most of the time I'm co-authoring. Here's what we've done to address this. But there are certainly times, you know, comment number four, thank you for that suggestion. What's where we'll use? Um, respectfully, we feel that this is not a change that we, you know, need to make or is relevant to this. Here's why. I mean, sometimes it's like, you know, add a period here. Thanks. Right. Um, <laughs> And that stuff's easy, but there was one that um, Melissa Rocco and I wrote a comparative case study about folks that were doing program reviews of leadership programs. And God bless this particular reviewer. It was one of the most comprehensive reviews I've ever had. 
And we were like, who is this person? They are a brilliant methodologist mm-hmm. because, you know, and, and Melissa had done her dissertation on uh, uh, with a comparative case uh, method. And uh, I teach qualitative met- I mean, and we were just like, who is this person? You know, it, it was so helpful and it really did enhance the, the manuscript. But it's really important as an author team to go one by one and address everything as respectfully as you can. Uh, I, I think that's that's just a big part of the, the process for me. And I think it really does help to facilitate that conversation, even though you may, you will, you're not supposed to ever meet these people, right? You probably got Robert Stake on like the case study or like Cresswell or somebody. <laughs> I was going to say it's Cresswell or like Jan- <laughs> uh, Valerie Janicek or like, you know, or somebody that's just like, you know, yeah. Knows, or Yin, right? Yin. <laughs> Adam Clark, right. <laughs> you probably like, they just dropped in the guest edit and was, you know, right, right. sometimes you get these, I call them Olympic gold medals drop out the sky. Sometimes those Olympic mm. gold medals drop out the sky. Yeah. So peer reviewer, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> Whoever you are. <laughs> if you reviewed my work with Melissa right, Rock. Right. That's right. <laughs> thank you. Because <laughs> I wonder too, if they get, I mean, I'm sure the editorial staff says thank you but I wonder if they yeah. ever you know overhear someone talking about it or if they go back and they look at maybe something they reviewed and it's highly cited or or mm-hmm. you know I, I wonder if if that's a, even a thing um and you kind of you know take some take some not credit but find solace or gratitude in the fact that you knew that this was a meaningful piece and it needed to be there and so you were happy to lend your your voice to that space to to be a part of the community in the process. Yeah, I mean, real quick, just to kind of affirm that, some of the rating scales and rubrics that some of the journals use will ask questions like, how important is this to the field, you know, or to the mm-hmm. to the study and practice of, or moving the field forward? Or, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, this is a good idea. This is kind of cool, but I could go either way. And sometimes you're like, this needs to be published yesterday. You know, wow. Or like, I... I you know, what a cool study. Why didn't I think of that type of thing? Um, so it's, um, that's definitely a part of it too. Awesome. So um, the last question I have for you uh, is uh, centered around ethical issues. So we know that with any organization, when you have, when you have people interacting, like, are, are there any ethical issues you've seen or like you've been kind of warned of maybe um, in your peer reviewing process? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest one is knowing one of the authors or thinking you might know one of the authors. Um, sometimes you get so used to reading certain people's work, particularly if you've co-authored with them before. That definitely happened to me once where I just was like, I, I this has to be such and such. Um, there's no way it's not because of who they're citing. And, or sometimes if there's, if they mention where they're, you know, some identifying information wasn't taken out of something. So there have definitely been a couple of times where I've reached out to the editors and say, I got to, I got to recuse myself. This is, this is, this isn't right. I know this, I know this person too well, um, or I contributed to some of this research or, I mean, there's been times where someone was a, you know, a participant in a study, you know, and ended up being, uh, and they're like, yeah, I can't review this because I was one of the people interviewed, you know, and you don't know, right. As an editor, you're just, you're trying to assign the folks that you think would be best. And you are asked if you have any conflicts, please let the editorial team know. So I think that's the biggest one. The other one, and I was thankful, I won't name who this this person was, but they reached out to me, um, this is seven or eight years ago, and said, I'm reviewing a manuscript for XYZ Journal, and I think some of your work may have been significantly plagiarized. 
I just wanted you to know that this, I'm bringing this to the editorial team. I I did follow up with this person about a year later and it did not end up being published. I, I didn't get a ton of details other than that, but I really appreciated that that person came forward to me. And this person has very high ethical credibility. Um, and so I wouldn't expect anything less from this person. So that could occur. I think that's a little rare, but that's something to maybe be on the lookout for. I think that by far the biggest issue is, do you know this person? Because that's not that's not a blind review, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What an important point. So yeah, I mean, thanks. I think this is this was fun. Uh, I certainly uh, I talked a lot more than I normally would on a <laughs> on one of these episodes. But thank you for asking such great questions, Lauren. I mean, I hope this it, it, I really helped others understand the process. Uh, hopefully, it'll increase some of the submissions to some of our leadership education, uh, some of our you know more traditional leadership and management journals. And, and uh, yeah, I'll be submitting y'all. I'm glad to share any other. Uh, info or recommendations, resources, advice uh, that I'm able to. You're welcome. You're you are a pleasure, a model guest, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Laura. Thanks. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura J-B. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.